trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're uh, reaching out there looking for some wrong think, my friend, you have arrived at the correct destination. This is where we revel in wrong think. It's where we question the narrative. It's where we think for ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we necessarily walk in lockstep. I mean, there might be some places where we agree, but really, it's up to you. Isn't that the whole point? To think as clearly and independently as you possibly can about what's going on around us. And I've got some stuff that will absolutely light your fuse today. I mean that in a good way, okay? I'm not trying to incite anybody, but I do want to mention my sponsors who make this program possible. I hope that you'll take the time to get to know them. They include HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. So over the weekend, I got a uh, got a notification from the Good Citizen Substack, which if you haven't subscribed, you really should consider it because this is really top-notch commentary. There's there's humor, there's a lot of great insight, but I mean, the, the facts seem to hold up very well. And the Good Citizens shared a trailer for the upcoming Plandemic documentary, which I believe is set to be released in March of 2023. So it's just a, just a few months out. And, you know, I, I really feel like I was paying attention. In fact, uh, my, my wife and maybe other people would tell you, yeah, you were paying a little too much attention. You You just went on and on about... You know, what was being done during the pandemic in terms of the mandates, the the uh, different lockdown procedures, all the stuff that was forced on us in the name of trying to keep us safe. But I have to admit, you know, it's it's been nearly three years since the pandemic kicked off. And even with the, the close attention that I was paying, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of faded into the darker recesses of memory to where it's, you know, I don't, I don't sit and dwell on it every day, but I forgot just how far the people in power were willing to go to impose what they wanted to impose on us. And, and this is one of the most insidious parts, the intensity of the propaganda. I forgot how intense it was. In fact, I'm going to play just the audio from a little bit of this uh, this uh, this teaser for the uh, pandemic documentary but keep in mind you're you're seeing some of the top talent in the world coming together to convince people to take the shot you got to check this out President Biden's chief medical advisor says people need what he calls trusted messengers. The White House has now recruited TikTokers, YouTubers, including some very big celebrities on how to direct their followers to trusted vaccine content. Build is one of the largest public education campaigns ever. The goal, convince Americans, get the COVID vaccine. It's vaccination day. It's vaccination day. It's vaccination day. Today I get my COVID jab and I'm feeling really fab. For months I have been waiting for this day. Dash 19, masked up with my team to smash back the disease. And we dreamed about the day that we'd have a vaccine. Yeah, now that human made miracle is finally here. Time to take a shot. It's Megan Thee Stallion, Ariana Grande, and Jimmy Fallon. Y'all know what time it is. 
it's time to get those boosters. They in real life, you need to vax that thing. You're feeling freaky all night, you need to vax that thing. Anyway, you get the picture. You get the picture. And it's $10 billion worth of advertising money or, or propaganda money that was doled out to these influencers and artists who were expected to, you know, get us on the right, on the, all on the same page and, and getting the shot. Now, the documentary goes on to talk about, in fact, I'm gonna, let me just fast forward this a little bit. I'll, I'll come to one of the other spots in here where it's, it's not all fun and games. It's not, you know, they, they talked about, well, we've got to get the shot. We've got to do this. Our patience is running out. You remember all this? But then it takes a little bit darker turn. In fact, uh, I'm going to come back here for just a sec. I want to just play. This is this is the, the part that we're not hearing so much about. What about the people who got the shot who are now uh, suddenly collapsing and or dying, you know, for, for reasons unknown? So here we go. Check this out. We'll get a little, little shot of uh, comedian Heather McDonald mocking because she's vaxxed and double boosted. Check this out. Two. We have finally found the one thing that makes us all more attractive, a vaccination. I want you to know, double vaxxed, booster, never got COVID, clearly, Jesus loves me the most. Seriously. And right here she stumbles. So nice, so nice. And boom. Comedian Heather McDonald collapsed over the weekend during a show. Her management saying she suffered a skull fracture in the fall. The CDC has confirmed higher than normal cases of heart inflammation in 16 to 24 year olds. Service members later developed chest pain. Tests showed it was myocarditis. All right, I'm going to stop it there. Um, I'm including the link to the Good Citizen Substack, and it has the uh, eight and a half minute long trailer in there. I'm not telling you, you got to watch this, but I'm really recommending if you, if you have found yourself, you know, kind of moving on like, well, you know, okay, that was then this is now things are getting back to normal. I promise you things are not as normal as we want to believe they are. And I, this is not to put you in a state of fear or to put you into a state of anger, but you've got to be reminded all the things that were, were said to us, all the things that were stated as fact, which weren't the pressure that was brought to bear, the anger, the demonization toward the unvaccinated. And then when you start to see the the reality of the people who had bad reactions, which we're not supposed to talk about, right? This is the elephant in the room. It's uh, it's very sobering. And and I, I was surprised, actually, as I watched this, I was like, wow. So much of this I have compartmentalized and put away and, you know, well, I just don't think much about it anymore because it's, it's not right there in my face, but... To, to be reminded of it, it's like, holy cow, this thing is, this is much more serious than we have been led to believe and much more serious than we sometimes even allow ourselves to believe. And I can't help but feel just a, a little bit of, uh, um, I don't know what the, what the right word would be. It's not awe, it's uh, a sense of uh, discomfort at watching comedian Heather McDonald sit there and mock God. Yeah, I got my shot. I'm double vaccinated. Jesus loves me the most. And then five seconds later, boom, she's on the floor with a skull fracture. You know, the audience, you heard them laugh. They, they thought it was part of the act. Oh, this is... <laughs> oh, wait, she's not moving. People are rushing to the stage. Wait, oh, that's kind of serious. Now, please understand, 
if you are someone who who got the vaccine, I'm not condemning you. I'm not saying ah, somehow you're less than, than the rest of us. But I am saying the people who were pushing that vaccine were doing so recklessly. And in fact, if you, if you pull up my show notes today, this is for November 21st, 2022. You'll see I've got this uh, tweet that someone had sent out. Once you understand that the solution wasn't created to solve the problem, but the problem was intentionally created for the solution to be rolled out, then you will comprehend the magnitude of evil in the people behind everything. Now, if that sounds conspiratorial to you, I can't help you there. But this video, and I'm I'm very much looking forward to the documentary, this really highlights the concerted effort to try to get everybody to take the jab. And if you're one of those people who resisted, and and I I know a few people like that. I, I try to run in those circles. I resisted myself. I have not regretted it for one second. I don't know of anybody who said, yeah, I kind of wish I had done it now. In fact, I know a lot of people who actually got the jab because it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Okay, this wasn't necessarily because they were pressured. It was, you know, out of a sense of, well, maybe this does make sense to do. But I've heard plenty of them say, I am kind of regretting that I did this. So I'm not asking you, let's condemn everybody who took the shot. But I am strongly recommending the people who've tried to force it on everybody. They're not good people. And I don't care if they were acting in an official capacity as a government bureaucrat, a health, you know, a health official. If they were some kind of movie star or singer who was out there using their influence to try to convince people. They're not good people. They are on the wrong side of history. Now, you can do with that information as you will. I'm, again, I'm not inviting anybody, you know, turn your backs on them, shun them, throw trash at them as they walk down the street. But the folks who made the decisions to roll out that vaccine and to push it and push it and push it on people, those are the kind of people I think I would, uh, I would say for myself, I will work to keep as much distance between them and me as possible. Oh, and don't look now, but... Uh, They found some other ways to try to uh, inflict themselves upon us. Central bank digital currency, anybody? Yep, it's coming. And remember, it's not about keeping you safe. It's not about, look, we just care about you and we want you to be okay. It's about control. It's always been about control. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I got to apologize. My voice is hanging on by a thread. This is one of the dangers of cold and flu season. And unfortunately, it's also the danger of when your voice is uh, the tool by which you make a living. You you run a real risk of talking yourself out of work. And I'm, you know, always hanging right there by that that very thread. So I'm, uh, I'm going easy today. You won't hear me shouting, you won't hear me screaming, but you may hear me struggling just a little bit trying to get through, uh, you know, what I do. So by the way, let's uh, let's take a quick moment here. Just want to mention garagedoorproservices.com. I appreciate Seth and his company, and uh, Seth is working on some other stuff that's really, really cool. 
He is uh, not only is he the guy in charge of garage door pros and installing, servicing, repairing garage doors across uh, southwest Utah and, you know, St. George, Cedar City, also Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona. But this guy has a real thing about drones, you know, the kind that you can fly and get uh, video footage from. Saw some of his videos over the weekend. Holy cow. That is some amazing stuff. And I'm hoping to talk with him in the near future. And maybe he even has, you know, some some exciting news for us. But anyway, garagedoorproservices.com. Please check him out. Let him know that as a sponsor, their message is reaching you. So when you hear someone complaining about our diminishing rights, what's your first reaction? Just your gut reaction. Is it, oh, what a crybaby. Got a great article here from Todd Hayen. This is from the uh, offguardian.org website. What is all this fuss about rights? And Todd really hits a nerve with this one. He says, people seem to think anyone who complains about their rights is some kind of crybaby ninny. He says, I hear comments all the time like, rights? You already don't have any rights. So why are you upset about losing any more? Or quite the opposite. You don't know what losing rights is all about. Try living a week in North Korea. But he says, neither one of these responses shows how much shows much intelligence or understanding of our current situation. He says that first one, for instance, is a really good example in this regard. Rights are being lost so quickly. When and if we finally wake up to the fact, we realize how much indeed we've already lost. But that's still not a good reason to ignore what's going on. Now, the second response shows that whoever's saying this doesn't understand that North Korea is exactly where we are headed. It's, it, too, is no reason not to be hyper-observant about what's currently taking place. He says, history has clearly shown that if you don't nip such things in the bud, totalitarianism or any of its oppressive derivatives is bound to eventually creep its way into the culture. We as a free society must be constantly aware of the possibility and see the early signs of it. And he says, it's so interesting to me that people in general will slap the label paranoid or better yet conspiracy theorist on a person if they show any concern for the abuse of power and possible corruption no matter how significant or insignificant the concern may be. As Jordan Peterson once said, systems go terribly out of control when people don't stop them when they're going mildly out of control. Now, Todd Hayen says, making this stranger yet, we know that people, and lots of them, are still capable of acknowledging and acting against what they perceive as government corruption. This capability was made clearly evident during Donald Trump's term as U.S. president. He says, whether Trump's entire negative persona as president was fabricated by the press or not, he says, I certainly doubt all of it was. Those on the left still responded as if it were a formidable problem and, of course, still do. Now, he says, as much as I was taken in by media hype at the time, I'm still astounded how viciously adamant people were and are that Trump and the Republican Party that supported him are the only reason the country is in a tailspin. It all seems rather clear to me that Trump and all that came with him was at least in part an insidious decoy. So why is this? Well, Todd Hayen says, if the populace can see corruption in one circumstance, in other words, the alleged corruption of Trump's administration and party, why can't they see it in another? Like the government corruption we're experiencing now. And in one that the evidence shows is indeed corrupt. He says, is this perception entirely caused by the media? Well, in his opinion, he says, it's very likely so. He says, I believe that the cliche is true. The press really does control public opinion and public stance. Now, the press may be one of the roots of the massive weed that got us into this mess. 
but the press only used to be as powerful as their insistence on reporting the truth. Now, obviously, it doesn't matter to them at all if they're reporting the truth, so why is that? Well, the taproot is not the press, but the people consuming the media's vomit of information. They typically don't know how to scrutinize truth from untruth. In fact, it seems that the distinction between fact and fiction doesn't even matter. He says, I've seen situations with friends and family where a very clear evidential truth is finally presented, as is happening quite often right now, and they still will not cry uncle. I don't care if it is true. I'm sticking with what I believe. It's a no-win situation. And he asks, why? He says, I don't know that there is one answer to that question, but surely one of them is the power of past indoctrination. With regard to the freedom question, he says, I truly believe many people simply do not want to be free. For one thing, they really don't know what freedom means, and as simple and facetious as it sounds, as long as they don't have their video games, their pot, their porn, and other instant gratifiers taken away, they're as free as they care to be. Think Brave New World and the prominent drug Soma, as Huxley presented it in his joyous dystopia. Soma can take many forms today, and it replaces anything of any true value. It is a drug just as the drugs we encounter today, such as pot and alcohol, but also things we don't think of as drugs, like cell phones, computers, video games, pornography, new cars, fancy shoes and clothes, big houses, partying, sex, affairs, and so on. Now, he says, of course, I'm describing an extreme of the spectrum, but I think you get my point. So he says, my view is that many people do not care about the sort of freedom that you and I would fight to the death to protect. Take freedom of speech. He says, no, I'm an old hippie. Well, not exactly, but that's another story. Let's just say I come from an era where freedom of speech and the restrictions around it was really a big deal. Free speech was the pillar of American democracy, and even to a tiny, seemingly insignificant oppression of it, that was tantamount to plunging a sword into the gut of everything the United States stood for. And he says, I still feel this way. He says, I got into one of these typical skirmishes on Facebook with a few very longtime friends, some of them people who are my age as well and should have the same sentiments regarding freedom of speech as I do. Now, he says, I played dumb for the most part and responded to someone who was suggesting that people now boycott Twitter because the free-thinking Elon Musk was taking over. I asked, is that because you don't like Elon Musk or because you don't like freedom of speech? Someone, then, someone else then proceeded to give me a primer on constitutional law and said something like, to paraphrase the Constitution, Congress shall make no law to restrict the freedom of speech. Last time I looked, Twitter was not Congress, implying that Twitter was not violating any law that they had to abide by, that only the government of the United States needed to be concerned about the illegality of limiting speech. A private company had nothing to worry about. Now, Todd Hayen says, I'm not going to get into a discussion about any of this. In other words, whether Twitter, Facebook, YouTube at all have the right to restrict speech, censor information, or whatnot. He says, I do think there is an argument here, but obviously that's for another time. What I am going to comment on is the attitude of my compatriots taking the position of defending Twitter or whomever of their current practice to censor, restrict, <clears throat> and otherwise oppress the free exchange of information and opinions. He says, what the hell? The, uh, the other oddity is that a half dozen people suddenly pounced on me for suggesting that Twitter had no right to manage their members who had all signed agreements of submission to Twitter's rules of engagement. Well, that isn't even what I was questioning. He says, people overall seem very sensitive about this. They're quite happy that these information sources are protecting their delicate ears from misinformation. 
Okay, he says, well, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe there are cases where companies have the right to, you know, to discriminate. But he says, why are people defending that? Why aren't they in an outrage? No one would stand for, for instance, people barring individuals of color from entering a restaurant, even if the people discriminating were on the right side of the law. He says, it seems unconscionable to me that anyone would be on the side of someone or even a private company who wishes to restrict speech, but that's where we are. And his conclusion is people honestly do not want to be free. They find comfort in being controlled and having information controlled because with freedom comes responsibility and it seems no one is willing to take on any responsibility today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I apologize. My voice is hanging on by a thread, and it's uh, it, it really gets inside my head. I can feel it slip sliding away, and it drives me just a little bit crazy. But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you'll put up with my infirmity, and I'm going to try and make this worth your while. Taking a little bit different approach here, this is this is kind of an unusual topic, but this article caught my eye. I was uh, looking over some articles on AmericanThinker.com, and this is an article from Anthony J. de Blasi, Music and Life, and it really got me thinking, when's the last time you really pondered just how much music adds to our lives? Well, this is a great article about how music takes over when words just aren't enough. Anthony de Blasi starts with a quote from Shakespeare from The Merchant of Venice. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Anthony de Blasi says, I once wrote, there is more of life in a Chopin, Chopin, let me try that again, Chopin mazurka than in all of Margaret Mead's writings. Now, it was a remark not intended as a disparagement of an anthropologist's work, but as a comment on music that goes beneath the surface of things, where the essential value of music to life may be found. This deepest matter of music is something that few anthropologists have much to say about. Music is so naturally united with us, said Bothius, that we cannot be free from it, even if we so desired. This metaphysic helps explain, I think, why audiences have thrilled and still do excelling compositions of music regardless of their era of production. Keep in mind that uh, Bothius lived 480 to 524 A.D. An important insight on the relationship of music to life comes to us from composer Felix Mendelssohn, who in 1842 wrote, quote, There is so much talk about music, and yet so little is said. For my part, I believe that words do not suffice for such a purpose, and if I found they did suffice, I would find I had nothing more to do with music. People often complain that music is too, un- too ambiguous, that they should be thinking as they hear it is unclear, that what they should be thinking as they hear is uh, it is unclear, whereas everyone understands words. But he said, with me, it is exactly the reverse, not only in regard with an entire speech, but also with individual words. These two seem to me so ambiguous, so vague, so easily misunderstood in comparison to genuine music which fills the soul with a thousand things better than words, end quote. So Anthony de, Blas- de Blasi says, uh, you know, to get it, to understand what Mendelssohn was saying, 
Think of what gives words their meaning in the first place. Since each word is defined by other words, is this not the ultimate uh, circular pass-the-book game in which the actual meaning of any word is missing? Could that be the conundrum on the mind of Rodin's thinker? In however many ways it has been expressed, the intimate relation of music to life has been acknowledged by every culture. It is an intimacy that I, as a musician, am particularly close to. He says it affects many of my thoughts regarding reality, and perhaps this is why the art of composition holds a special interest for me. And so for what they are worth, here are some thoughts of my own on the subject. He says, at the moment of creative conception, facing the vastness of possibilities of arranging tones, rhythmic patterns, and other basic elements of musical formation, a composer plays or is played between the poles of complexity and simplicity. To bring forth order from the chaos, the composer must continually balance the extremes of tension, that would be the complexity, and serenity, or simplicity, in order to fill the time dimension with a musical sound. The points of balance chosen by a particular composer deliver a musical self-portrait, as it were, along with the music created. Now, i got to hit the brakes here for just a second and tell you, I'm not a musician, although I love music. I love many different kinds of music. That is one of the most interesting descriptions that I've ever heard. And, and yet it makes sense. It makes sense to me that uh, <clears throat> music covers all of those different possibilities and, and allows for almost infinite creativity for those who are composers, singers, musicians, etc. Back to the article. Anthony de Blasi says, because the spectrum of expression in the language of music is wider and richer than that of words, a reason why music takes over in movies when words cease to communicate, sentiments and meanings close to the heart and the mind of the musical artist are likely to be more directly and vividly expressed than in words. Now, this is naturally true of music that is treated as music. Music as ornament or filler of some kind to tantalize or distract the senses is insincere and irrelevant to the task of making music speak. So he says, let it be clear that I'm speaking of music intended for the listener's full attention, and tuning out is not an option. He says, I speak of music conceived as an independent art, not as an embellishment of spoken information or accompaniment to political statements. Such use of music plays loose with a part of culture that, by its nature, serves to enrich life. He says, My study of many composers has made me aware of some who, like Brahms, work to attain the greatest effect from the least of means, a way of making something out of nothing, musically speaking. Facing the vast possibilities of articulating tones in a timeline calls for a good measure of discipline. In lighter music, this factor of restraint may be recognized in music like that of Duke Ellington and composers of pop music with a serious appreciation, appreciation rather, of their craft. The Let It Hang Out group includes, in the classic vein, composers like Milhoud and, in the pop vein, ad-lib artists who compose as they play. It is beyond the power of words to describe how a composer reaches a balance between jumping and holding back, in other words, spontaneity and restraint, in the sparking zone of musical creation. Such knocking on the door of the mind for what's in the heart has nevertheless been attempted. Edgar Allan Poe went straight to the matter in The Philosophy of Composition, where he details how he applied a rigorous mental approach to the composition of The Raven. Can successful musical composition be so straightforward and cerebral? Anthony de Blasi says, I don't think so. 
Puccini struggled to pull forth from his mind the fluid melodies of his operas. Mozart copied what was in his head, while Beethoven labored slavishly to shape what was in his head into music. You may ask me where I obtain my ideas, wrote Beethoven in 1823. I cannot answer with any certainty. They come unbidden, spontaneously. I may grasp them with my hands in the open air while walking in the woods, in the stillness of night, at early morning, stimulated by these moods, by those moods rather, which poets turn into words. I turn my ideas into tones which resound, roar, and rage until at last they stand before me in the form of notes. Arnold Schoenberg settled the matter of mind versus heart in composition by pointing out that the work of the mind and the work of the heart are inseparable. What matters, of course, are the compositions that result from people applying themselves directly and fully to an engagement with the world in musical terms. I am inclined to believe that the most successful compositions are those that intimately touch both heart and mind and affirm the wonder and beauty of the world, this despite its nettling negatives. I also find, or I also believe rather, that honest creative artists tread sacred ground on a journey not just to find themselves via their preferred medium, but also as much as possible as it is for mortals to discover their connection to the original creator and report on what they have learned by way of their work. Ooh, I really like that last line. And, and here's why. And, and you don't have to agree with me, but for what it's worth, I believe that... Uh, I believe that music, and particularly musical talent, is a gift bestowed by God on certain individuals. I think every single one of us have gifts of some sort. And for some people, one of their gifts is to create beauty. Some do it through different mediums of art, pottery, you know, sculpture, painting, whatever it may be. But music definitely has to be one of those gifts. And the idea of discovering their connection to their to the original creator and reporting on what they've learned by way of their work. I don't know why, but that one uh, that one stirs my heart. And I'm not a composer, I'm not a musician, but I certainly can appreciate those who have that gift and who who work to develop it and uh, multiply their talents, if you will. Sometime I'll have to share with you the story of George Handel and how he uh, wrote uh, the Messiah. Maybe I can do it in a nutshell here in the next 30 seconds. Bottom line is, Handel was commissioned to, to write this, uh, um, I don't even know what the correct word is for the type of, of musical uh, composition that it is, but he, he was commissioned to, to come up with this, this musical performance, and he threw his heart and soul into it, and I would suggest that if you have a chance to, to hear you know, someone in your local community performing Handel's Messiah come Christmas time, do so. And as you listen to the incredible melodies, even to the words that accompany it as well, tell me that you don't get a sense of the divine in what Handel was able to produce. I think he was pretty humble about it. He felt like, you know, this was something that came to him actually by way of inspiration. And as I've listened to those those great, uh, you know, Handel's Messiah choruses, the Hallelujah Chorus and so forth... I think I would have to agree. That's not just uh, somebody plunking out a tune on the piano. There's something really magnificent and divine about that music. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I would ask you take the time to get to know my sponsors. You'll find links in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on HSL Ammo or Monticello College or Life Saving Food. Just check out their websites, see what they have to offer, and if they have something that is of interest to you, please feel free to do business with them. So two quick articles I want to touch on here in this uh, final segment today. Um, One, I'm just going to get right to it. The FBI uh, director's slippery non-answers to a number of pointed questions while he was under oath are casting some very serious doubt on the J6 narrative. Julie Kelly, writing for AmericanGreatness.com, says the insurrection house of cards is collapsing. Let me give you a couple quick excerpts here. She says, amid bombshell revelations that the FBI embedded numerous informants in two militia groups accused of plotting to overthrow the government on January 6th, FBI Director Christopher Wray is finally facing some heat. During a Homeland a House Homeland Security Committee hearing on Tuesday, Representative Clay Higgins from Louisiana angrily demanded to know more details about the use of FBI informants related to the Capitol protest. Higgins twice asked Ray whether FBI informants disguised as Trump supporters were planted inside the building even before protesters gained entry. When Ray offered his usual obfuscating tap dance about protecting sources and methods, the suggestion that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. He indignantly insisted. Higgins called his bluff. It should be a no, he yelled when Ray wouldn't give him a straight answer. Ironically, Ray was saved from directly responding by none other than Representative Benny Thompson, chairman of the January 6th Select Committee. Julie Kelly says one would assume the lawmaker in charge of the 18-month congressional investigation into the events of January 6th would force Ray to respond. Thompson should have been shocked at the suggestion the FBI stationed assets dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol prior to the breach. Further, given reporting by friendly regime news organizations like the New York Times confirming the existence of FBI informants months before January 6th, Thompson and his fellow Democrats should have blasted Ray for either inept sources or a complete failure to collect accurate intelligence from those informants. Where's the outrage that Ray concealed this information from the public? and various congressional inquiries. Ray has misled Congress for nearly two years by insisting his agency was caught off guard by what happened that afternoon. So why didn't Thompson and committee Democrats condemn Ray instead of rescuing him from a legitimate question? That was a telling moment. Now, there's much more to her article. I'm going to encourage you, click on it, read it for yourself. She has been one of the clear voices of reason in presenting a more uh, fleshed-out approach to the January 6th narrative. And i got to tell you, the official narrative does not look like it's holding up very well at this point. Now the bigger question is, are we going to fall for it? Are we going to just shrug? Well, you know, what, what can you do? I guess you just go along until, you know, you can figure out something better. Turn off the TV, I guess would be, would be the starter. Quit giving recognition, quit giving power, quit giving any kind of status to the people who would pull this kind of a stunt. That's, by the way, not a a claim that, well, nobody misbehaved that day. Some people did. 
But the bigger question that's starting to uh, emerge is what if it, what if some of the major misbehaviors or some of the people leading out with that misbehavior were actually working for the federal government and its law enforcement agencies? What then? Kind of makes you wonder what the end game was or is since it's still in play. All right, moving on. Part of the challenge before us is learning how to overcome a lifelong training to fear and obey. Got a great article here from Paul Rosenberg reminding us the cure is in our hands and we need to take it seriously. He says, I don't recommend television watching, but I fell into one useful experience while watching it some years ago. It was well after midnight. He says, I found myself in front of a TV, killing time. There wasn't much on, but after some scanning, I found a rustic infomercial from a local church. They were offering prayer for the sick, depressed, and overwhelmed. Now, he says, my thumb was poised to move on to the next channel, but instead I I stopped and watched. I I decided to look at the people in the pews to really look at them. And he says, what I saw were people who knew they needed help. They were in pain. They had failed to become what they wanted to be. They had hurt others. They were lost in the midst of a confusing world, and they couldn't see a way out. Now, these people were not stupid. They knew that dipping slips of paper with their names on them into holy oil was silly. But they overlooked it because they were desperate, and maybe, just maybe, something might help. And the truth is that people often do get help in those places, not from the leaders so much as the other attendees. Humans are clever creatures, and when they try to help each other, they often succeed. But he says, my point, however, in my surprise lesson was this. We can complain about the huckster, but the only reason he's in business is because people have nowhere better to turn. They know they need something, but they don't know what it might be or where to find it. Well, as it happens, he says, the cure to a great number of those problems has been sitting in our hands for years, and we haven't properly appreciated it. He says, I don't think I'm being overly dramatic when I say that liberty people, myself included, have failed the people in those pews. We applied our ideas to the tar pit of politics, but overlooked people like these, people who needed help so badly that they'd chase hucksters. And we should have known. At one time or another, all of us found ourselves at some gathering talking to someone who was emotionally joined to the system. We'd say how much we wanted liberty or honest money or whatever, and they would fly into an instinctive rage. We didn't see anything dangerous about what we were saying. It was truth, after all, but they saw it as a direct and serious threat. But as it turns out, they were right. We didn't appreciate the scope and power of what we had. The fact is that liberty and honest money are really about a decentralized model of life centered on the golden rule, of applying the golden rule to everything. So there are two important things to see here. Number one, golden rule only is existentially threatening to the status quo. Number two, it would solve the personal problems of millions of people. Paul Rosenberg says, in other words, and this is huge, What we had was far more powerful than we could grasp from within political mindsets. Consider how many personal problems thrive on low self-esteem. I don't know what the true number might be, but it's very clearly a large one. And how many personal disasters happen because people are afraid to use their own judgment? That answer almost certainly is most of them. So a large percentage of all problems, all such problems, would fade away if self-esteem and judgment weren't at such abysmal levels. And the centralized golden rule life that we found would solve precisely those problems. Not completely, of course, but very significantly. The people in the pews, he says that he'd watched, had been trained to believe that their role in life was to fear and obey. 
not to create and to judge. They had their wills crushed by hierarchy and its institutions. They were confused by smooth-talking people in expensive suits. They were intimidated by people in uniforms. They were repeatedly shamed. They were taught to bow before the idol of authority. I love the, the imagery that he's creating when he says this. Does that not ring true? Paul Rosenberg says these are the sources. Those are the sources of their problems, and they are precisely the things that the golden rule life washes away. Now, again, ours isn't a complete fix, but it is a big one. He says, we were slow to see it, but the people who freaked out knew healthy, free, confident people do not reflexively obey, and such people are an existential threat to the systems that they worship. So, in other words, the establishment needs its subjects to be confused, insecure, and ashamed. It couldn't continue otherwise. And precisely that requirement is sickening millions of souls. We hold a great cure in our hands, and Paul Rosenberg says we should take it seriously. This is one of the things I love about his writings. You know, he's, he's not trying to steer you into a particular political solution. In fact, the political solutions really don't seem to be solutions at all in most ways. But when you think about the need for a system to keep people, that's you and me, insecure, confused, ashamed, as opposed to healthy, free, and confident in being able to make our own choices and trust ourselves to make those choices instead of having to defer to some expert, suddenly it makes a lot more sense. So I'm not trying to steer you in a particular political direction here. Well, you should always vote this way. As much as I'm asking you to consider the possibility that the most revolutionary thing you can do, the best way you can fight back against a system that is trying to take from you your freedom, your prosperity, your actual love of life, is to become the best person that you possibly can. The kind of person who is healthy, free, confident, That's something you have absolute choice over. And nobody can take it away from you when you achieve it. It's a very revolutionary act. And here's the best part. It will have unmistakable influence on the people around you because they will see for themselves, yes, it can be done. This is The Brian Hyde Show.